You're listening to Sex Gets Real with Dawn Sarah. That's me. This is a place where we explore sex, bodies, and relationships from a place of curiosity and inclusion, tying the personal to the cultural, where you're just as likely to hear tender questions about shame and the complexities of love as you are to hear experts challenging the dominant stories around pleasure, body politics, and liberation. This is about the big and the small, about sex and everything surrounding it we don't usually name. The funny, the awkward, the imperfect happen here in service to joy, connection, healing, and creating healthier relationships with ourselves and each other. So welcome to Sex Gets Real. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Hey, you. Welcome to this epic episode and Patreon bonus that I cannot wait for you to hear. This episode is huge. So grab a snack and get comfy. Prepare yourself for a rich discussion about nurturance, rape culture, relational responsibility, repairing harm, bystander conditioning, and so much more. But before we get to that, I want to mention two things. First is the October cohort of my five-week online course, Power in Pleasure, is enrolling now, and I would love to have you be a part of it. It is such an exquisite exploration of your pleasure stories, how we can shift our relationship with body, with food, with the erotic, so that we can find more presence and fulfillment and connection in our lives. It's something I'm incredibly proud of, and it feels like such a gift to get to be in it with each and every person who is there. So if you'd like to learn more and join us, which I really hope that you will, it's uh, going to be starting really soon. So head to dawnsarah.com slash pleasure course today to learn about it and to get your spot because it is limited. The other thing is I would love to hear from you. What are you curious about? Where are you feeling stuck? Or ashamed or unsure, what would you like to have witnessed? You can write to me and I would love to receive it and let me know. You can either email me directly, info at sexgetsreal.com, or if you'd like an anonymous option, you can visit donsarah.com and use the contact form there. And again, just for those of you who are new, Sarah is spelled S like Sam. E-R-R-A, Don, Sarah, first and last name. Uh, so I'm collecting questions as I prepare for the next few episodes of the podcast, and I would love to be able to support you and to hear from you. Let me tell you a little bit about today's guest, where we go in this amazing conversation, and then the awesome bonus episode that we recorded for Patreon supporters. So Nora Samaran is a white settler from a working class immigrant background. She was a member of the No One is Illegal Vancouver Collective from 2005 to 2008 and the Media Democracy Day Volunteer Collective from 2008 to 2010. Her essay, which I have shared liberally on the show over the years, The Opposite of Rape Culture is Nurturance Culture, went viral in February 2016 and has grown into a book, which is the basis for our conversation today. That's out by AK Press called Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture. 
She teaches at Douglas College in Coast Salish Territories, also known as Vancouver, British Columbia, where I am. And as you're going to hear in this episode, Nora Samaran is actually the pen name for Nava Smolash. So uh, throughout the episode, you're going to hear me refer to her as Nava. Uh, we chatted for over three hours on the day that we recorded and about an hour and 15 minutes is what you're going to find here as we really weave in and out of things like the importance of interdependence, cultivating relationships that are far beyond the sadly low bar that so many of us have of just don't violate me. We talk about attachment styles and how our culture valorizes avoidant attachment styles and really demonizes anxious attachment styles, what it means to have relational responsibility and how we can actually come together to center the most vulnerable among us while still honoring the humanity of people who cause harm because all of us are capable of it. And you're going to find that we really meander in and out of the topics. And part of that is because Nava is so thoughtful and wanting to offer us context and examples in naming her teachers and the people who have done the work before her. So this is a conversation that's really about growing into something, which means slowing down and allowing it to unfold. And what unfolds is extraordinary. And I can't wait for you to hear it. For Patreon, Nava and I talk all about gaslighting. And you really don't want to miss it. We go into not only what gaslighting is, but why this culture we live in lies to itself, how disconnected and dissociated we're trained to be, why meeting in the middle is not the tool that we want to use for a lot of the gaslighting behaviors that so many of us are experiencing. We also uh, explore the neurology of why we can be gaslit in the first place. Nava talks about some uh, people she's been learning from around that. And we talk about trauma bonding and why it can be so hard for us to identify uh, behaviors around gaslighting, much less leave. So if you want to hear it, you can head to patreon.com slash SGR podcast for Sex Gets Real, SGR podcast. Folks who support it $3 a month and above get access to the weekly bonus content. Plus, it really helps me to keep this show going and you do not want to miss this bonus chat. And if you support it $5 a month and above, you can help me answer listener questions. I just posted two new questions this week for you to check out. So again, patreon.com slash SGR podcast for all of that goodness and to hear a really in-depth chat about gaslighting. You can get all of the links for buying the book via AK Press, including a discounted link through the Healing Justice Podcast Book Club uh, and a link to hear Nava's amazing conversation on the Healing Justice Podcast, plus Nava's blog, all at donsarah.com slash EP280. So we're on episode 280. So be sure to grab those links, grab the book, listening to the podcast with Healing Justice, and join the book club discussion because I will be a part of that too. So let's jump in because this conversation felt so amazing to be a part of and I want you to hear it. Welcome to the Sex Kids Real podcast, Nava. I'm super excited to talk to you today. It's so good to be here, Don, and it's great to meet you in person after having listened to you for quite a long time. Oh, thank you so much. I literally read 
your essay, which spawned the book that we're about to dive into, when you wrote it several years ago and since then, I've just been so hungry for more conversations about this stuff. So I'm excited we get to do it. That's so cool. I'm really happy to hear that. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. Okay. So here's where I'd love to start. Your book, uh, which is out by AK Press. So everyone, please go support this amazing publisher. We love AK Press. We love AK Press. That's everything (laughs) they're doing. So you wrote a book called Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture. And it is an expansion of an essay that you wrote uh, a couple of years ago about the opposite of rape culture is nurturance culture. Mm -hmm. And so for people who are maybe new to the language, I'd love to have you just tell us a little bit about nurturance culture and kind of this um, framework that you've been exploring. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um... So that essay grew um, as a way to try to understand some experiences that I was having at the time, and it was quite personal, um, and it just sort of resonated with folks. And the idea was that I was grappling with, of course, this question that's going around, around what do we do about rape culture? And I was realizing that just learning how to ask before we touch each other isn't really enough, that there's a much, much, much bigger question underneath. And as I wrote the essay, I didn't write it because I understood. I wrote it because I was trying to figure things out. Like, I write to learn. And so the thinking was that um, we need on so many levels simultaneously to cultivate uh, human relationships and non-human, and relationships with the non-human also that um, do more than just be like, don't violate. We have to do so much more than that because neglect is also a form of violation or breaking of trust, mm-hmm. right? And so I was learning how to come into words about things that were happening to me and people around me and the world, the earth, the planet. Like we just had the climate, the climate march yesterday. So this is of course really forefront on a lot of folks' minds. Um, and I live in uh, British Columbia, Coast Salish territories. And there's um, a very, very strong, which I think, are you also in Vancouver? Yep. Yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah. So you'll know what I'm talking about. Cause often when I speak with folks in the States, it, there's less, um, less awareness around these questions yeah. that like, of course, if you live here, this culture is moving towards recognizing um, that the settler culture is breaking the planet. <laughs> it's not that humans are breaking the planet. It's that like Western culture is breaking the planet and there are lots of other ways to be human. Um, and of course on the coast here, we get to, we get the benefit of learning from a lot of indigenous folks mm-hmm. about um, the knowledge that has not been able to be destroyed that's fragmented from colonization but that is still intact in a lot of places and being rebuilt that's being put back together after fragmentation and and violence from all of the harms of colonization that hasn't ended that's still ongoing as we know um so i live here and i've been listening to that stuff as all the people here who care have been and i think that's an influence and so underneath this question about masculinity which i was thinking about there's this whole ocean of other things going on right But the surface of the essay was thinking about, you know, relationships I've been in with mostly cis men and um, some of which have been very, very nurturing and caring and some of which have been really damaging and dangerous. And I was trying to understand why they were so different. How come some of my relationships were so healing? (laughs) I was in two long-term partnerships with um, unusually nurturing men, I'd say, who, you know, hooked and, and, and cuddled me and, and encouraged me to heal and grow and created safety for me. And then in between, I had all these really dangerous experiences, <laughs> not only, but a few. Yeah. And I was coming out of one at the time, trying to understand what was going on. And it was partly just this 
absence of normalizing interdependence, Mm -hmm. right? And um, during that process, a friend handed me, literally was like, this will help explain it, who was a a therapist, handed me, um, this book, Hold Me Tight. And it started me on this path of learning about the brain and neurology and attachment theory and the fact that like our brains are literally wired for interdependence, which I think in, in other words, in other framings, I think in um, like traditional indigenous knowledge, at least where I live in the Pacific Northwest, but I think in many places, um, like Turtle Island cultures in particular really knew that already a long time ago. <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. It's okay, like, as a white person, like the Western worldview that I was raised in is just starting to catch up and it had to go through science before it would listen. Right. <laughs> right. And it's like, now we can look at the brain and, oh, indigenous people were right. Fuck. Right. <laughs> now we can prove the things according to our standards. Right? right. Right. Exactly. Instead of just listening to people who have 14,000 or 20,000 years of knowledge behind them. So, um, um, so for me, that was just a way in, right? Yeah. It was a way to to get language that I understood as a as a white person. Like there's only like I needed some concrete science. I needed to know what was going on in my brain. Yeah. To be like, oh, that's why my instincts and my intuition and the earth are all telling me the same thing. And the and like indigenous people that I've listened to speak are all saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. They're saying that we're. I think we've we've come to the end of what Western culture can do. Yeah. And so the the essay was about masculinity, but I think the reason it was so, um, it went so far, had a bunch of reasons, some to do with masculinity and things men are looking for, and some to do with this underneath shift that I was sort of stewing in and trying to understand as as one of many, 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 many people. And I think like the key is that we do everything, like uh, Miriam Kaba had this article that just came out. I just saw it a couple of days ago. It's going around and it, the clip that's pulled from it was um, everything good we do together. You know, mm. we don't do anything good by ourselves. And it's just kind of, it's a beautiful um, interview with her. That's talking about like, even if we, you know, the uncertainties of yeah. um, how we do this kind of work, if we are going to do good things, we do them together. Yeah. Um, and masculinity in this culture teaches people that they have to do everything alone. And, oh, and I guess the key of the nurturance, I say that the key insight, I suppose, if there was one was to like, there are different attachment styles that our brains form based on the random arbitrary experiences that happen to be happening to us when we're little, when we're babies and under three, under five. And then we, we learn those as rules of the way life works. And we expect that people we're intimate with will repeat the same things that happened to be doing happening when we were young. Um, And the thing is psychology has spoken about, has written about that extensively but I'm a cultural theorist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm interested in the way that plays these things play out culturally. My background is in literature and cultural studies. And I was like, oh, both of these are less than optimal ways to relate. Both avoidant attachment where you don't need care and you're like, I'm pseudo-independent. I don't need other people. And anxious attachment where you've been harmed so, or you haven't been received um, enough security so you're always afraid that people will leave and you're seeking it mm-hmm. both of those are less than optimal because optimal is calm interdependence mm-hmm. where we rely on one another we let each other go but we're there for each other and yet this culture shames anxious attachment and valorizes um avoidant attachment neither of them are ideal but we live in a culture that punishes and 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 um shames people for having been um, have, have received less than optimal care. 
And I was experiencing some of the gendered ways that that can play out. And I was like, wow, this is a cultural overlay on top of a really normal neurological experience. And that was what the essay kind of focused on on the surface. Yeah. I just remember people sharing the shit out of your, <laughs> it was your pretty piece. magical. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> and I I I loved seeing so many people feeling like, uh, I'm hungry for more conversations about this. Right. I'm hungry for because I think where I'm finding myself so often is um we've spent a lot of time, especially those of us who are really invested in like social issues, cultural issues, social justice. Mm-hmm. I feel like we've spent a lot of time pointing out everything that doesn't work. Yeah. And really yeah. pointing out the systems that are contributing to the violence. And I'm so. Which is essentially. It's essential. essential. Like, naming, yeah. naming is essential in a culture that tells you that the things happening aren't happening. But. But I think I know where you're going. And I yeah, think. like I want us to continue to name those things. And I do constantly on the show. Yeah. But like, I'm also so interested in what's possible. Yeah. Like, what could we dream our way into? Mm-hmm. Since, you know, the technologies that we have have never existed before. The globalization mm-hmm. that we're experiencing have never existed before. What could be possible? And I think that so mm. much of what you hit on was even just the language nurturance culture right? Mm -hmm. That got in front of so many people and Mm -hmm. continues to now with your book. I think it offers people some of that hope of, Mm. well, we know we don't want rape culture and rape culture is bad, but what's, what's possible? What's an alternative? What, what could we orient towards? Mm -hmm. And this concept of what if we nurtured each other? What if there was Mm -hmm. more interconnectedness and interdependence and, and what if we could find some language and some ways to potentially start feeling into that together? Mm -hmm. Each other and also all the non-human life and also the, um, like all of the, all of the ecological systems Mm -hmm. There is definitely a hunger because our nervous systems give us this gift. We have developed over millennia as humans, but before that, right? <laughs> like apparently limbic brains are in all mammals and even in birds. There's these like lesser, they don't have the same fully developed versions that we do, but it's what allows us to recognize that when we make a, a, a young, like a baby or an egg that hatches or whatever, <laughs> like, <laughs> that we shouldn't eat it, you know, because the desire to eat small things is also very strong in all of our brains, apparently. There's this amazing book called... Um, Oh, and I'll have to get the name of it for you because now my brain is not giving it to me. Um, but that went into quite a lot of detail about the neurology of attachment. And it talks about the way um, that we formed limbic brains at the same time that we formed um, growing our young inside our bodies instead of in eggs, mm. that there's a connection between those things. And that like a lizard doesn't have a limbic brain and it will hatch a baby and turn around and eat it because it's like food. <laughs> Ooh, yum, small helplessness. Small right? wiggly thing. <laughs> <laughs> or just get up and walk away. Like there's no, you know, and that this incredible developed gift in our bodies is to um is to require interrelationship in order to live. And I think that's a real inversion for folks who were raised in a Western worldview the way I was, you know, really, which is that our, um, our existence is 
our environment, our, our, our earth, our world, and one another. It is that. It's not like we need each other. We are each other. Like if I don't have air, I don't live. If I don't have water, I don't live. So I am the air. I am the water. They are me, right? And that's a, a that's true whether we like it or not. Mia Mingus also um, in in the book in the last chapter uh, with Alex Johnson, she talks about working with Mia Mingus in the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, and she said that you know Mia's work has, and I think for me too, as thinking around disability. I think she's Mia's work has inspired a lot of people to think in those ways that it's only a few, a, a small number of people for a, for a part of even those people's lives who can pretend that they're not interdependent, right? You have to be able-bodied. You have to have enough money to buy the things you need instead of depending on others for things you need. And I grew up working class and at times poor and have had, that's now in my past. It's not my current reality. I have a good job now, but a lot of my formative experiences were like not having enough food, not having a place to live. And that makes it very clear that you need to share if you want to live, you want to survive, you know? And so for me, that was really instinctive um, on a lot of levels. And I think for my family in many ways as well, that was an intergenerational experience that you have to be together or you won't, you will die. Um, And so there are ways that I come to it through my family, but also then learning about it culturally and, through learning from other folks who know more than the survival version, right. <laughs> who know the thriving version, you know? Right. Yeah. For, for us and for the earth, what would thriving really be, right? It would be, it would be good boundaries are not disconnections. It would be good boundaries with interdependence. Yeah. Yeah. You wrote this thing. I'd love to read. Um, it's just a sentence, but it kind of touches on what we're talking about. Uh, and you wrote in a healthy human ecosystem, most interactions between human beings exist in this in-between area in which we have relational responsibilities to one another, regardless of our emotional closeness. And I think that this speaks to it, like so much of what we've got culturally is a responsibility to a point to the people that we're in family with or in intimate relationship with. And that's kind of really the extent, you know, maybe people we go to church with or work with, but even those are kind of seen as a different level of, of responsibility. And I love how you're naming this healthy human ecosystem and this relational responsibility that we have just to other human beings, the people we share land with, the people we share buildings with, the people we share space with, the people who make our food and our bread. You know, I mean, like there's a responsibility to being human and sharing resources that I think often gets lost. You know, we're more about using what we can, getting as much as we can for as little as possible Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. so that us and ours can thrive and then kind of to hell with the rest of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're, that's valid. It's not only that we do it, it's that there's pressure to be that way in this culture. If you are not like that, you are swimming upstream against a very powerful current. And that means many, many heartbreaks (laughs) for many of us who value mutual aid and interdependence. And I think I've had a real refresher course in this lately because I went to a uh, training called the um, Institute for Advanced Troublemaking. Oh, fun. So amazing. And um, actually one of the organizers was just here visiting a few days ago because for me, yeah, whatever – when I have space, like I have this apartment in East Vancouver now, and when I used to live in a collective house, you know, I feel like um, we're stronger and we're more able to organize and resist when we are looking out for one another on a physical level, not just um, 
not just talking about it or there are many ways to look out for each other, but this culture um, really shames that and discourages that interdependence. Um, capitalism and neoliberalism really, really valorize independence and disconnection and, and frame it as choice, which has its benefits, right? That framing, that, that um, valorizing of choice Ironically, in a capitalist system where we have very little choice, right. less and less and less choice, <laughs> we have lots of choices about what to buy, but we don't have choices about whether we want, like, what kind of, how to live. Like, we don't, we have to, we give up all sorts of choice to do our crazy hours of jobs, right? It's like the most authoritarian structure you can have is like, I have to do what my boss says, even though it's against my values, because otherwise I won't pay rent. Like, right. <laughs> so this, this taking away of our, of our choices and disconnecting us from interdependence is masked as choice, which is interesting. But some plus sides to it are things, you know, like, I think that a lot of the self-expression that has um, made it possible for people to understand all the nuances and complexities of gender beyond a binary has been one plus side to that emphasis on individualism. Like, who are you really is, is a strong value. Um, but then something on the other hand is lost, where um, if we emphasize disconnection in order to have individualism, we need to be able to be individuals. We don't necessarily want to go into a culture where we have to all be the same. Of course, nobody wants to all have to be the same. That's terrifying, right? Um, but, but can we be truly, genuinely each our own selves and fully, fully expressed all, fully be all of our best gifts, all of our beauty and all of our complexity and all the gender complexity that people express and all the creative human complexity that people are, their cultural difference, um, enriching it rather than having it slowly get uh, whitewashed. If we can succeed at fully being able to love one another, but also help and care for and recognize our physiological like our we are our frailty like we we only continue to be alive in any moment of vulnerability because of the others who hold us up you know and for me because i have a disability and i've experienced drop-offs in my capacity to you know earn a living and things like that um over time that's i think very um intuitive and has been very evident. I'm here and I did this project and I'm able to talk to you today because people who love me held me when I broke. And I think that that's true for all of us. And we can forget that if we, you know, um, as I, I like right now, I'm a, I'm a prof at a community college in Vancouver. And so I have an income that allows me to pay for a nice apartment in a neighborhood. I like, I'm able with white privilege to walk in and rent that apartment because the landlords will see me as a professional white you know, person and say, yes, they, they see that I am these things they're looking for. And that is um, a massive amount of privilege for me, but that also means violence for other people who can't do those things. So like um, to be able to, oh, and that, that creates kind of a bubble wrap. Like the more this culture gives you privileges that other people are, are denied increasingly as our, as our wealth gap grows, as you know, in Vancouver, the housing crisis pushes more and more people into insecure housing. Um, the more we do not humanize one another, the more we do not see one another as human because we're pitted against each other. For these small, for crumbs, like for small amounts of safety or stability, we're pitted against one another. Um, when, the, you know, the planet is being destroyed by people who have million dollar yachts and houses in five countries and fly, it's just the scale of, of destruction is so massive 
Um, and yet we're all sort of like scrabbling for scraps or for a nice middle-class life, which I've now managed to push myself into some, like, you know, I'm in that a little bit now and I'm aware that that disconnects me from people who are, who don't have food or who are having experiences that I used to have. Right. I don't even remember what it felt like anymore. And there's a dehumanizing, there's a forgetting, um, that disconnects. Right. Yeah. And so I really feel like um, we don't need, so this is what's so interesting is we don't, what I learned at, what I remembered at this retreat is that we don't need to be close. We don't need to naturally feel like, oh, I want to cuddle with you and hug you and be your best friend to have solidarity. That it's okay that we'll naturally feel closer to some people and less close to others. And there are levels of intimacy that we need to learn how to govern. We need to read each other's cues. The, The essay talked about this potential um, way of understanding rape culture, rape that was, you know, if we can more clear, more, if we can understand our need for connection that is um, underlying a lot of the pressures that we experience, that we might be better able to respect people's no's and also recognize people's yeses. (laughs) It's another way in to being like, why do people sometimes lose their shit when a woman says no or refuses to smile at them on the street or whatever? It's one of several. There are other good ways to understand that too around entitlement. Um, but um, but it was just one insight that I was like, oh, maybe that's part of the picture. Um, and so I've, you know, I've remembered through this experience of this re- this training that I was at, this 10-day retreat that I was at with amazing, inspiring, incredible people that um, we're going to be close to some people because we're like them or because we just have an intimacy that we desire with some folks. And if it's mutual, awesome. But we don't only have responsibilities to those folks. We can have mutual mutuality and care. I can offer my couch to somebody that I don't want in my bed. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yep. <laughs> and there are ways that if many, many, many of us remembered that about humanity, that our concentric circles of intimacy could have larger, um, larger medium circles. <laughs> it's not to say that you have to be best, have an inner circle of people that you haven't chosen but there's not only the inner circle there's the medium circle and the outer circle too and then there's the world and the earth and the like those are all part of our obligations and if we don't know that those obligations do not go away they're still there if you don't water a plant what happens (laughs) it doesn't stop needing water yes (laughs) it's like oh you theorized me out of needing water so i don't need it and that's not how it works (laughs) neoliberalism cannot change or alter the, the, the needs that living beings have. It can just prevent us from knowing how to take care of them properly. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I've been seeing a lot, especially in spaces with groups of people who are trying to um, think about relationships differently is almost this fetishizing of I am my own being that's totally responsible for only my feelings and you are your person and you're totally responsible for your feelings. So if I punch you in the face and you don't like that, you should go look at why that bothers you. Right. (laughs) Yep. I've seen so much of that. And like, both seen this. Yeah. yeah, Like RA circles and, you know, poly circles and lots of other places. But Mm. I think it's just an extension of the existing violence Mm-hmm. To like deny that we have very real impacts on the people we interact with and yes. the people we don't yes. and the ways that we do both of those things. Yes. And choosing to disconnect is also a form of connection. Um, that to say, I'm not talking to you, that's not neutral. <laughs> 
that's active wall. It's very different from a peaceable um, sharing of space that is humanizing, but perhaps not deeply intimate. You know, um, that's a whole other conversation. So much of the work you're doing around community and thinking about the ways we relate have to do with how can we protect the people who are most vulnerable and need the most protection, who are experiencing the most oppression, and how do we also hold ourselves and each other accountable while it's still a deeply humanizing process? Yeah. So can you talk about that a little bit? Some of the things you've been Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Thanks for that. That's a beautifully framed question. Um, uh, so I think of the, the way that I love for this to be done um, as like I've been thinking of it as like the double move lately. There might be another, there might be an, another essay. Now that the book is out, I'm like, ooh, <laughs> what happens if I go back to just blogging? <laughs> um, that'd be fun. Um, and there's a bunch of like background essays that are all percolating, none of which have gone out yet because um, I'm rusty at the, <laughs> at the just listen to yourself. Now that there's this formal thing, the because the blog started as really private and really just like, I'm just going to say whatever I really think because no one's reading it anyway. <laughs> the way a lot of those things do. It's like I used to play it, you know, in my dad's garage or whatever. And now I'm like signed and I'm like, oh God, it has to be good. Um, so, but one of the things that's been percolating is thinking about the double move, right? Which is um, once we have defined what a community is, because of course, we will dissipate into nothingness if we try to be everywhere and everything in a culture that doesn't have any, we're all atomized right now. Not everybody. I did not grow up in an atomized family, which is part of why um, my, my uh, exposure to mainstream North American culture was delayed into my adulthood because of the pocket of the world I grew up in. Um, Cause I grew up in a, in a, in a community, in a community, in a community. <laughs> um, I grew up in like a big clan immigrant family with all our issues and all our, um, it wasn't an ideal situation, but it was also wonderful in many ways. In that way, the family can be both amazing and beautiful and 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 terrible at the same time. Like that, <laughs> right. Much on that model. Um, and you know, we think you take for granted the things that are there that are wonderful. And I didn't know that other people didn't have dozens of cousins playing with each other and and pets and aunts and uncles and and uh, and seeing each other all the time. And like my Montreal family still now because I think my um my uncles and my aunt. And my, my father's side of the family particularly really value family. Like family is wealth for them. It's everything. Because they came through World War II as Jews in Eastern Europe. And so they're just like, there were boys who died. And for them, like uh, us, like their kids and their, their and then now the grandkids and the great grandkids, like that's wealth, you know? And they were really, really poor. So like there was a wealth in one another that formed me despite all of the, there was also harm and various other things that were painful in that family. It's, it's formative. Right. And I was also in the Montreal Jewish community, which is also a little town. Everybody knows each other. You kind of have to deal with each other, whether you want to or not. So <laughs> I kind of got a weird little shtetl. Like my uncles actually grew up in a shtetl in Eastern Europe where there would have been nowhere to go. Like you have to deal with each other, like it or not. And I think on some level they brought that with them. And I was raised maybe in a bit of a shtetl mentality, even though I was living in a major city in North America. I think that's possible. So I didn't really know how atomized general North American culture was because my family was not atomized in that way. We had other shit, but it wasn't that. Um, there's a joke about Jewish guilt and Christian guilt that I could tell you here, but I won't. <laughs> 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 funny. Um, but, um, but we're diaper dive. So there are weaknesses in every space. In the family that I grew up in, we have a difficult time recognizing and naming harm. 
very difficult time, particularly around gendered violence, because it was it's a quite um, patriarchal culture. Um, the literal meaning, <laughs> actual <laughs> patriarchy with patriarchs. Um, but when harm is recognized as such, like if someone, my dad kicked me out when I was 14, you know, and my uncles were like, she's too young. That's not a thing we can do in this family. They have no problem to, they, all the older uncles piled on my dad and were like, she's 14, take her back. What are you talking? What are you thinking? You can't do that. And it took three days and I was back home. And it's like, to be able, and they, they weren't saying, I'm never going to talk to you again. That's not on the radar of thinkable things. It doesn't exist. It's starting now at this generation, people will have a fight and stop talking. But the family as a whole is like, that's not a thing we do. And it's deeply ingrained, which doesn't mean individuals always respect that. But there are many exhortations to continue to connect if you stop. And that's the opposite of most of the rest of this society, as I have learned. <laughs> so for me, there was a pretty significant culture shock when people would have like a fight and stop talking for 10 years. I was like, wait, what? I didn't know people did that. <laughs> Why would you rather that? That's so painful. And then you have to navigate who's going to be in which spaces. And I'm like, just suck it up. Like, and, and by which I don't mean people need to be around their abusers, but I do mean the community as a whole can protect people facing harm and can create those boundaries so that people facing harm are not alone and abandoned to deal with it. And that's the first half of the double move. So something that my family didn't quite manage to do that I have since understood through other spaces, because I worked at a summer camp for eight years in Western Massachusetts that practiced a lot of these values. And that's where I learned a lot. And then in some of the early organizing spaces I was in, if there was a difficult experience or a conflict, we would get together and people would organize sessions to work things out because it's understood that you struggle together. It's something I learned. I heard this, I think, first from Harsha Walia, who was um, one of the organizers who was very um, hugely impactful in the migrant justice movement. And I was in known as Legal Vancouver for a few years and it shaped, they taught me a ton. It shaped a lot of my thinking. Um, and, you know, those folks would just be like, here's a thing you're saying, doing, or thinking that we think is messed up. Here's why. And we would talk it over. And that's before Facebook and before, you know, it's, it's just before the internet, um, like, organizing shifts the way that we're organizing on some level and those folks have like knowledge of organizing skills and strategies that is like learned from previous struggles um and one of the things that she had said was you know we struggle together that doesn't just mean we struggle together against things we hate but we also struggle with one another and that was really compatible with my upbringing because um i'm jewish and you know i learned at one point that the word israel not the country but the older much 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 older meaning of that word is wrestles with God. Mm. And I grew up in a culture where you're supposed to debate with each other to learn things. That's totally normal. And there's no, there's no, oh, don't disagree. <laughs> <laughs> that thing, don't disagree. That is not a thing I grew up with. I think disagreement brings you closer. I think it's valuable. I think when we can do it really openly, it's a form of respect and intimacy and trust. So for me, it made a lot of sense. Of course, we're going to struggle together. We're not all going to think the same way. Why would we? Why would we? Especially in anarchist spaces. Like, since when do anarchists have to all think the same way? Fact. <laughs> ah, that exploding so absurd, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that what I have learned since as an adult that tempers those early influences is when there is a circle that has formed, whether that's a weekend retreat of 30 people or an affinity group that's voluntarily formed for, you know, uh, going to an action together of some kind, or whether it's um, a pod that's formed to protect survivors. You know, we've talked, I'm sure you've talked before about pods or a band or 
a classroom group, whatever it is that we form that does have a community, that once we know who those are or family or whatever it is, a building, a household, um, that there's a double move, both of which are hard. And so I think there are levels of success when people say, is this TJ process successful? You know, and I'm like, well, I'm no expert in TJ. Like look to the people who that comes from, right? But I've tried for many, many, many years to live in a way that heals and repairs because that's what I was raised to do and that's what I was trained to do. And so move one is first have empathy for the people being harmed. Mm -hmm. Direct empathy towards them, listen to them. And there are going to be many distortions that get in the way and stop that from happening. And I learned this stuff from um, my friend, uh, Kira Page in Montreal, who has taught me a ton and who's doing some amazing organizing work with some very powerful folks there. Um, And also uh, acknowledging, um, which reminds me to also acknowledge that the bulk of what we're calling TJ work um, comes out of black and brown women's organizing and queer folks' organizing um, outside the state. Um, and so any of us who are not from those backgrounds, who are you know learning from and borrowing and growing those skills, also want to do it in a way that doesn't erase the way black women particularly are impacted by many, many layers of violence. Sorry, I'm going in circles a bit. So the double move that has been meaningful for me has been first, center the folks that are most impacted, whether the harm is interpersonal, individual, or whether it's systemic, but manifesting interpersonally, like it could be white supremacy and masculinity impacting women of color in an organization, but it is acting its way through individual people, or whether it's massive systems, whether it's, um, you know, indigenous people not able to access traditional hunting lands that they own um, because there's like a, a, you know, big white people's development on top of it, like a ski resort or something. We can look at this at many different levels of scale or whether it's, you know, the American immigration system that is putting children in detention in these ways that are terrifying and nauseating. Um, That whatever those are, we can, we first need to work hard to center the people that are facing harm and there are many, many barriers to doing that. There's many, there's a lot of bystander conditioning. This is the stuff that I learned from Kira. There's a lot of bystander conditioning that will make it difficult for us to even see what's happening or recognize what's happening. We simply, we have to overcome our own conditioning not to notice and to, and to punch down, which is interesting why human beings have this wiring, but we do. And so we won't be able to recognize violence sometimes when it's happening. Um, So that's, Step one is it's very difficult to keep empathy focused on the people facing harm, and that's a continual retraining, reprogramming. I've caught it in myself after taking a class with Rachel Zellers um, at McGill a few years ago, um, who's this brilliant black feminist um, scholar and organizer, um, originally from the States, but then based in Montreal, who's now moved to Halifax. (laughs) She was in Montreal for a few years at the same time as me, and I got to sit in on a class she was giving that was on black feminist organizing and theory. And... um, she explained something that really crystallized something. I I kind of felt it, but I didn't know it was a thing. I didn't understand it, that, you know, black women will be erased in every space that they, that all of the things that they contribute, create, generate will be taken and then they will be erased. And, um, and then I later caught that in myself when I was teaching and I was like going to teach a concept that came out that I learned from that class. And as I was about, and I had written a description that put all the black women's names in first who had come up with it, that I had learned from Rachel. And as I was about to give the handout out and explain it, 
I had this voice in my head that was like, people don't want to know this. The students aren't going to want to know this. And I was like, oh, whoa, okay, that's white supremacy conditioning. How long has that been there? And I guess it's been there a long time, right? Just this is an important, black women aren't important. Don't talk about them. Don't, don't pay attention. Um, and then from that thinking, you know, and that's something Kimberly Crenshaw, of course, talks about, right, with um, her, her con- conception of intersectionality. Um, but then it grows from there as a concept that's helpful for anyone who experiences um, intersecting violence, right? So as a poor young woman with disabilities who was homeless, there were kinds of erasure that were happening to me that that framework could help me understand. And then later, as a woman with a disability who was experiencing gendered violence, the way that I would speak and I would name a thing and no one knew what I was talking about, like my words didn't make meaning, they became garbled. I'd say this thing is happening and I'd, I'd have struggled through the neurological silencing to be fairly clear, to find the words. Like I have a PhD in literature. I've been reading since I was two. When I'm having trouble, I go to words, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and I couldn't make words sometimes, which was new. But sometimes then when I managed to, people listening still would have no ability, even simple words, even like, could you name that? My friend named, a close friend of mine named some harm she was observing to me. And I said, oh, could you name to him what you've named to me? And those words did not mean anything to her because in her upbringing, you can't tell men no. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist. And that's the fascinating thing about the limbic brain is it makes these rules that are below the level of language, they're below the level of cognition, and then it just thinks that's the way the world is. We don't even know they're there, so we can't question them because we can't even look at them to question them. And it took me repeating myself. I think I repeated myself hundreds of times over a few weeks because it was a close friend and we were walking in the forest a lot on the island near her house. And I got more and more and more distressed and she knew I was distressed and she loved me and she's a very good friend and she knew I'd been abused because she watched it. But the sentence, the thing you named to me, could you name it to him, made no meaning for her. It didn't, there was no plug for it to go into. And after a few weeks, she said, oh, you want me to name it to him? (laughs) I've been saying it and saying it and saying it. So there are ways that we can't absorb certain things that this culture has taught us can't, don't exist. It's not the person's fault. Like I then was like, you don't need to do this. I understand this would be too hard for you. But I had to learn that there was a gap in her map of reality. I couldn't understand that she couldn't know it and she couldn't understand what I was saying. And then, so we've, I've had to learn what bystander conditioning is from everyone all around me all at the same time. And many survivors do in the moment when they most need other people to step in and protect them. They suddenly bump up against all these strange places where the floor falls out all around them. Yes. Right. And so that's number one is catch your own conditioning, whatever it may be that will make it difficult to recognize and hear what people are saying. Recognize that they may have uh, neurological barriers to speech, like when we're, re- re- when we're um, thinking about trauma, broke his area and our brain just turns off. <laughs> so woohoo, you need to tell what happened to you and you don't have your language center. <laughs> yeah. Right, or the story that you can share is the story that's helping you to survive something horrible. Yes, yes, yes. The bit that you can tell is not the bit that's the most important sometimes. So when you catch something, yeah, like here, listen for more. Something else that Kira talked about that she learned from other folks as well. That's like uh, the iceberg will go by and it's the, you have to catch the iceberg and pull it up and look at what's underneath, right? 
Um, so there's that first, and that's continual retraining. When you catch yourself going, but but the poor person who caused harm, and it's okay to do that, but don't forget, don't forget to center empathy on the person who's being harmed because it's very difficult to keep it there. So that's the first move. What do they need? How do we protect them? Keep returning to that over and over. It's not a one-time thing. It's fabric, so you have to keep doing it. Once that's in place, and that might mean that you get, they get listened to, that they get believed, that we name the thing that they're trying to name, we name it with them. Um, it might mean that we create spaces where they can move freely without needing to avoid the person who has harmed them because often it's, it's survivors who need to leave spaces. And then the impact is way beyond the harm. It's like you lose a whole community, you lose a whole circle. Um, and the betrayal of bystanding has distinct neurological impacts that are often worse, worse than the abuse itself. So make sure that you're not participating in amplifying the abuse by requiring the survivor to leave. Um, instead, make sure they're centered, make sure they're welcome, make sure they can be there, make sure they feel safe. Once that's in place, then and only then, while maintaining that, do we also, as a community, come circle up and go, okay, person who caused harm or system or structure or whatever, but let's think of it interpersonally because it's, I think what that we talk, I think you talk a lot about that stuff on, on this show. So let's focus on that. So, and of course there are structural elements involved often in all of these interpersonal interactions. Um, okay. Person who's causing harm and maybe can't stop or isn't seeing it or whatever. These are our expectations of everyone in our community. These are the baseline things that people who want to be part of this circle have to meet. You know, of course, don't rape people, don't beat people, but also don't lie, don't manipulate people, don't triangulate people, don't say one thing to one person and then another thing to another so that they stop talking to each other. Right. All, of that, <laughs> all that weird manipulative shit that people do who try to get control in all these strange ways, those things are not cool. You yourself as a human are a valuable human being. We see your good, we see your light, but these behaviors not okay, period, end of story. And then that person may go into some weird Darvo manipulation and that's the second move, getting able to recognize those kinds of evasive maneuvers and manipulations that people do when they're confronted. You can tell pretty quickly, I know these things can get messy, but you can also tell once you know how to look for it. I think the Kavanaugh case is a good case in point. <laughs> so compelling, but once you see the breakdown of the types of manipulation he's using, it's much easier to recognize it around you. That people who genuinely have a lot high degree of empathy will immediately be like, oh my God, I need to really understand what I did. And then they'll hear it and then they'll need they'll they'll feel compelled to make it right. And if anything other than that is going on, then you can be like, okay, maybe that person isn't able to do that yet. That doesn't mean that we let them continue harming. It's, it's true that it, whether to change, I agree with folks who believe that whether to transform is a kind of an internal question. You can't force, Mia Mingus is like, you can't make somebody change. But I don't take it quite as far because I'm like, we can't make somebody change. That's between, you know, them and their God or them and their soul or them and their psyche or whatever you, whatever you think of that. But that doesn't mean we allow harm to happen. And so the, the second step is, I say, name the steps to repair. This is what would be expected of you if you want to make it right. And I don't think we need to lower the bar for those folks. I think we need to meet it. And then they can meet it or not. It's their business. But they can't continue to impact others in ways that are harmful in the meantime. And that might take them a year or 10 years or the rest of their lives, but that's their business, right? And when people are genuinely wanting to make things right, 
we won't have to make excuses for their behavior anymore. We'll know because they'll fully be like, I did this thing. This is why it hurt you. These are the impacts on you. These are, would this work? Would this make it right? Would that make it right? How can I, how can I fix this? I need to fix it. Um, and that's when we know that things are on the right track. And then well, we can hold a line for those folks and they become like a ball bearing. So if someone isn't able for various reasons, they're not ready or they have other things going on or, or they're too defensive, if they're not able to stop harming, the best thing we can do is almost you put like a like bubble wrap around them or like a, I think of it like a ball bearing that can move freely in a, in a metal joint, you know? They can do whatever they want. We can't force them to not be abusive. Nobody around the person who's causing harm participates in it. They just are like, okay, you're being a jerk. Go to the other room. Go take, like, go, go do that somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're going to circle up around the person who's being harmed and make sure that they're good and, and be warm with them. We're not going to attack you. So there's this in-between state where we neither have to like, we don't have to be angry at or direct enmity at or shame or bully the person causing harm, but we can, but neither do we collapse and do nothing and allow the harm to go on or participate in it as bystanders. We do this third way, which is go, that thing you're doing is not okay. We're not going to let it happen. We're not going to let it happen in six months because you wait. <laughs> you know the thing where they're like, well, what, what more do you want? I, I, you, you told me you, we started a process, but then they haven't actually stopped the harm. And then like a few months go by and people are like, well, why are you still picking on them? And it's like, well, because they're still doing the same thing. They haven't stopped. Yeah. <laughs> We're not picking on them. We're just setting a, like a boundary. Like you can't yeah. do the thing. And then naming what the steps to repair would really look like clearly. And then being like, we're here to help you if you want, if you're doing it in good faith. But in the meantime, you may not have access to certain spaces where the people you're harmed go. That's fine. <laughs> when you're ready to come back to those spaces, you can stop being the abusive person that you're being. <laughs> You know, and if the whole circle can do that around someone, then it's just that one person who's causing harm. The amplification of the cultural um, participation in abuse doesn't betray the person's trust. And that's true whether it's like white supremacy. You know, when you see somebody, um, if there's violence happening on the street and people around say nothing, do nothing, it's the betrayal that people report is almost worse than the original violence it's like you're turning because we need to belong we need to know that others have our backs in this deep deep visceral way and so if you're turning to those around you and they're just like i see nothing i do nothing i don't want to get involved there's there's this like dropping into the floor trauma response you know it's so dehumanizing and so strangely enough when people say oh humanize everyone you'll notice that the first move people go to is oh we have to humanize people who harm and I'm like, that's interesting. How about we start with humanizing people who get harmed? Right. Let's start there. <laughs> Why are we skipping that? <laughs> so there's this double move, right? Center and protect the people facing harm. And with that firmly in place, protecting them, work through bystander stuff so that they're not getting massively impacted in this amplified way, then spell out steps to repair, and then hold the line with the person who's harming. And they might never change. And that might mean they're not welcome in the spaces that you're in. That's fine. But they still have the power to take that step and do the right thing if they wish. Right. Right. It's tricky, though. There's barriers at each one of these levels. So I find each of those small successes, right? If we're doing one, it's a success. If we're doing the next one, it's a success. Like, yeah. 
Yeah, there's so much inside of that too that I think is so incredibly like nuanced, right? Like when we're talking about just at a very like generic level of centering the folks that are most impacted by harm mm-hmm. in any community, maybe it's like the building we live in or maybe it's our workplace. Mm-hmm. The people who are most impacted they may shift in and out of different levels of impact. They, uh, there might be lots of different types of impact, right? There, we might have some like black trans women. We might mm-hmm. have some uh, disabled poor folks who don't have access to housing. I mean, there's all different kinds of experiences yeah. that might be really difficult to manage, which doesn't mean that we don't do it. It's just, yeah. Yeah. you have to be uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. And I'm yeah. also thinking like, this this concept around acknowledging we have interdependence, acknowledging that we all have a fundamental need to belong, and being able to do this even our most intimate relationships, right, where we don't only have discussions around harm when things get really bad, yeah. that we start learning the the skills of being in that uncomfortable place of naming it as it happens yes, so that we can all do better before we reach a crisis point. Because I think yes. where we are now culturally is just in this never ending deluge of crises. <laughs> and like, yeah, we have to deal with the crises, but what can we start doing in a most intimate personal levels so that we don't even get to the crises or when we do, they're very rare and few between and we have more skill. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And for me that, yeah, totally. Is that kind of thinking about the, um, the need to be able to turn towards each other and, and be like, Hey, don't do that. Is very, very powerful. <laughs> Like coming back to that story about, you know, when my family did recognize a type of harm, it was no big deal to be like, don't do that thing. Right. We love (laughs) you. We love you. It's without a doubt that we're still going to talk to you tomorrow and in 10 years and in 50 years. That's not even on the planet of possibilities. Don't do that thing. (laughs) Cut it out. Ouch. That hurts. Ouch. Right. Right. Oops and ouch. It's like, and if we can't turn to one another. And in a way that's like warm and connected, be like, hey, that thing you're doing is shitty. Could you cut it out? Then instead of that easy conversation, we end up breaking all of our relationships. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And that's something that I just, it makes me feel so sad how we've gotten, how it's so normalized to just like kick people off the island yeah, and to just like cut and run. Yes, Because then there's this deep loneliness that I think more and more of us are starting to recognize. Like even though we're more connected than ever, our loneliness is growing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that the um, trick um, that neoliberalism and capitalism have played on us are that if you just don't let bad things into your life. (laughs) Right. All the manifest kind of bullshit like you brought this on yourself because you thought negative thoughts and that like which isn't to say that there isn't there's also energetic I do live with like but it's not like um just if something is negative just cut it out cut cut it out of your life only choose it's like we Marie Kondo our relationships (laughs) right and I'm like that's so absurd we don't get to choose who we're intimate with except except through immense amounts of privilege. (laughs) And typically the 
cutting is a double-edged sword because it is used much more quickly and much more often on those who pipe up about harm than on those who cause harm. Right? Whistleblowers get punished. Whistleblowers <laughs> get punished and people who ha- that I, I was about to use the word needy and I, I may still uh-huh. use it, but like I want to frame that as often too we're okayed culturally cutting off people who express needs. Yeah. Including fundamental needs like needs for safety. And we will interpret as anger, uh, fear or attachment cry or needs for safety. Um, if there is guilt or if there is a cultural narrative around those folks, like the way black women are always positioned as angry when they may or may not be. And the, uh, the massiveness of the harm, like if someone is facing violence of a scale that can't even really be depicted or expressed, it's so massive. And then is less than perfectly polite, is less than perfectly calm, then it's like, oh, that's the angry person. But it's like, man, like let their anger be a guide, let their emotion, whatever their emotion is, be a guide to having you turn and look at the system that they're facing. Like if the violence you're facing is that huge and you're a little angry, you're probably much less than proportionally angry. Right. (laughs) (laughs) What would be a proportionate amount of anger for the scale of violence that many people face? Often they're in fact being extra kind and extra patient. You know, I think about this as a, as a survivor of gendered violence when I was open and, and had believed in the good faith of this person who was not of people who were not able to act in good faith. They may not have had ill intent, but were not able to act in good faith. Um, that the scale of the damage that was occurring to my nervous system, to my trust, to my bonds, to my friendships, to my work life, to my day-to-day ability to think and, and act and speak and sleep and just live normally, the scale of violence will never be able to be captured in words. There is no language in the English language that would allow the scale of violence to be depicted. So it's like you're standing next to a Mount Everest of violence and you have like a little thumbtack or a thimble full of anger that might come out in your voice (laughs) and that's a lot of restraint and people are like oh geez you're angry and then even if you're not angry even if it's confusion despair mistrust if it's women speaking in less than like smiley happy chirp chipper then it's anger and it's like way to flatten a whole complex range of human emotions and desire like often it's just like can you please help me please don't betray my trust this is this is breaking me that will be misinterpreted as aggression and once you're viewed as aggressive, then it's open season to punish you, right? So survivors get punished from all sides in all these complicated ways. People cut ties with them. They shame them. They force them to relive the experience over and over while being doubted and questioned on every point. They, you know, they get these interrogations. There's so many ways that people who are reliving, trying to create safety around themselves, get mass, the, the harm gets amplified. In order to prevent that amplification of harm from happening, it's actually not as hard as we think, but our limbic brains sometimes don't allow us this possibility. We have to practice it, is to go, oh, okay, first I see the harm, I turn towards the person causing the harm, and I just say, like, cut it out. I name it. It's deceptively simple. And the thing is, that doesn't necessarily mean the person will stop harming. But what it does do is create protection for the, we we create conditions of protection for people facing harm. 
Yeah. Cause I think one of the things that's so hard is like, I encounter this all the time and I do have some guilt that I'm working through. Right. I mean, that's sure, just me part too. of all of this, but sometimes I don't recognize that what has happened right in front of me is harm until yeah. later. Exactly. Same. Right. Or things I've done. Yes. Right. And that's the other thing is to get rid of this idea that there are p- pure, good people who never hurt each other and impure, bad people. And if we just get rid of the bad people, it will be fine. Like, Completely. I don't mean just reduce it. I mean, get rid of it. That, and this also, I guess, is maybe I was raised with, you know, when you hurt somebody. My mom is pretty strong on this stuff. If you, you know, when I was a kid, we were just raised like if you hurt your sibling, you have to go say sorry and see if they're okay. And I've watched other parents that I'm close to raise their kids with not just go say sorry, which can be shaming, but ask what they need. My friend Shania is a fantastic parent and I watched her raise her kids and we're very like we're close. We live close to each other and I used to live with them. And I remember seeing her do with her kids when they were little. Um, what do you need? Do you need a hug? Do you need a snack? Do you need someone to listen? What will make it feel better for you? I know I've hurt you, but your needs are what we're going to focus on, not my shame or my apology, right? Do you need to hear me say sorry or do you need to, me to just come close and love you? And then you'll feel better, like focusing on meeting the need. So adults can do that too, right? Like I write about kids, not because I'm, I'm not a parent. I don't think I know how to parent. <laughs> I would love to have kids, but I haven't had that experience yet. Um, I'm mostly interested in what we do with kids because we can, the adults often need the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, often as a grown up, it's, it's just kid life, but amplified with more complexity. And if people who had harmed me came and were just like, what would make this feel right? What would feel better? What do you What do you need? It would be so simple. Listen, believe me. Stop doing this thing that's hurting me. It's not that hard, but we get shame and guilt and the attempt to pretend that we're perfect. These weird pressures, and those actually just make everything more tangled and complicated. And if we just give that up and are like, absolutely, we all harm each other. It's not that surprising and it doesn't change your status as a human you know we just it's it's just relationality and the key is what you do once you realize you've harmed or once people draw it to your attention or when the person is like hey that thing you're doing is hurting me stop that's when you have a choice moment and that's when you really the rubber hits the road you know yeah and I think something else the two that's so important about doing things differently you know, if we're going to begin um, really listening and naming harm when we see it, because sometimes it's really hard to see, is also allowing people to not know and to change their stories. Right. I think we're so married to immediacy. Yes. Because um, trauma results in dissociation. And if there is layered trauma, it can mean that things happen and we don't on, we we know and don't know. We have words and we don't have words. We we feel it, but it takes it's like underwater. It takes a long time to come up into words, and it can come up in waves. It can come up partially, and so we need to be able to go. Oh, you understood that at that time, and six months later, your understanding has shifted, and you have more words for what's happened to you, or better words. Yes, you know, same thing around. I think all the shifts people are seeing around gender, right? Like, it's not like oh, they made up new things. It's like, oh, they f- people are finding words for things that have always been. Yeah, and to find new words doesn't invalidate everything that came before it. Right. 
right? It's just an ev- evolution of finding evolution. new depths. New depths and new new lenses through which to really f- take in our physical experience and people's realities. And it's like the language of attachment, for example, it just put into words a thing that so many of us have already been feeling, you know, which is like, why am I shaming myself for needing a hug when I'm sad or needing, you know, secure attachment the way that, um, and of course these things get negotiated and navigated between people on the ground, but the needs themselves for someone that you trust and are intimate with to be accessible, responsive, and attuned, that's expected, healthy, normal, you know? Um, And in different ways when we're children than when we're adults, in different ways than when it's a partner, a friend, a parent and child, a workplace, subtleties and nuances we continue to grow and learn about and get better and better at without ever trying to pretend that we're perfect, right? And that we have it. We don't have it. Most None of us have it, really, I'd say. Maybe some people were raised with better models than others, but I think a lot of the learning comes out of mess and, and trial and error and chaos. Like uh, Adrian Marie Brown says, right? No failure is only data. You just, you keep learning. You're responsible you're accountable, you're in relationship, and you keep learning. I guess that's the thing. If we can turn towards one another and easily be like, okay, now that I know that this thing is harmful, when we allow people to change their stories over time and we listen and we learn over time, we might reflect about something that we thought we understood that happened a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago and have new insights and deeper understanding. We then you know, it is possible to come into alignment with ourselves. It is possible to live with integrity if you're listening to your intuition mm-hmm. and you're listening to your conscience. Yeah. This idea that in this culture that you just cut things out if they're not working. Yep. It's, I was like, really? So most, most like, I guess middle class and up Westerners know that the world is super screwed up and they're just carefully excising anything unpleasant from their lives and they think that that's going to create wholeness <laughs> yep and avoiding and how strange yeah that's not how i raised at all like i i think we live in the soup of human relationality within that we need to know what's true for us and our edges so that we can say yes and no in honest ways and that's work unto itself right but I don't just try to turn away from everything unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. And I really feel like you're speaking to literally the evolution of even this show, right? Yeah. Of going from something that was kind of entertaining and right. um, performative almost in a way, you know, from okay. a really compassionate place. But now being in a place where so much of what I want for all of us, as people ask these questions about, like relationships and sex and gender, I keep trying to bring it back to increasing our capacity and our resilience around messiness and uncertainty and the humanity that comes with all of these things. You know, like we can't just pick and choose the shiniest, easiest path because there's an awful lot of people who don't have that option. Yeah. And it's also erasing the systems that are going to make this an issue for you again down the road. Yes, exactly. You can only turn away from something so many times before it bites you in the ass. Literally, because you're turned away from it. Right, <laughs> but it's exactly. not turned away from you. Right. <laughs> it's, it sees you. It's locked it sees up. you. And it's like, oh, there's your back bite, right? It's going to catch up with you. Um, and also, it's a denial of human relationality. 
Um, and so, you know, it's possible to put up, we could make gated communities and try to keep all the bad on the outside, but we know from speculative fiction what happens to those gated communities, you know? Right. Bubbles where they're like, there's a virus, and if we make a dome, <laughs> the virus won't get in. Of course it gets in, of right? Course. Yeah. We, we are living in the same soup. So healthy boundaries are not brick walls. Healthy boundaries are, we, well, to varying degrees. Um, a good way of thinking about it I love is Alex in the book. She talks about moving into the, inter, moving into the interstices between closeness and disconnection. Of course, I have sovereignty over who touches me when and how which gets taken away when it's medicalized or it gets to, there are situations where we lose it. You lose it when you're in prison, you lose it when you're a migrant, you lose it when you try to cross the border. But I need to live knowing that I experience sovereignty, but sovereignty is the different from disconnection, right? And there's the struggle to know that even if my boundaries of my sovereignty are violated, that they exist and that I can assert them and I can have them. And that is distinct from I have nothing to do with you and I'm totally disconnected from you and I choose all my interactions. Those are not the same thing. And so like, I love the picture of like healthy boundaries are like a, like a dotted line. They're like, I respect my sovereignty, my edges. I know what is okay for me. And I'm also able therefore to be responsive and available to you. And that's increasingly true with increasing intimacy, but I think it is to varying degrees true of all of our interconnectedness. And if that makes sense, and I think we govern it through concentric circles to some extent of closeness, um, while recognizing that all the parts of those circles are significant. Maybe this is, you know what I'm talking about. I totally so you know, what, know I'm what you're saying. talking about. It makes total sense. We might need kind of concrete examples for folks that don't, aren't, aren't, have, don't have these same experiences. Like when someone says, hey, this person is abusive, it doesn't, we don't have to be their best friend and be really, really close to them and dive in with them and help them heal unless that's an intimacy level, right? Like there are different roles we can play, but there's lots you can do. You can believe the person. Th that already is huge. You can maybe, you know, if the person that harmed them as often occurs is someone who seeks a lot of um, public power, you can just refrain from promoting that person while not having to cut them out of the community or vote them off the island. There's a big, big difference between, um, belonging and having to be and getting to be up on a stage those are not the same thing <laughs> you can belong in a lot of ways you can belong by folding chairs at an event or doing the, you know cooking the food you don't have to be the one who's up on stage talking and having everyone look at you and a lot of the folks who do this kind of harm in our communities have an emptiness inside them and so they really really seek a lot of power and limelight and attention and so if, you know, folks are in a position of power or gatekeeping position because they've sought that out over many, many years, or they're cis white dudes with that kind of power, because right. <laughs> <laughs> people just give it to them. They're like, oh, you're a cis white dude. Here, here, have the microphone. You know? <laughs> uh, oh, you must be an authority on everything. Um, you know, we can just be like, why don't, why doesn't that person be among, among us as one of the many while they're working through whatever it is that they're doing that causes harm? Um, and those folks can sometimes interpret that as being cut out of the community because <laughs> the only kind of belonging they know is when everyone's looking at them and they're performing. <laughs> There's a compulsion to um, perform or be on stage or uh, absorb energy. Um, so we can make those distinctions. We can say you can belong, but try not to grow your power. 
Um, or we can say, you belong, but the people that you've harmed aren't going to process this with you. Other folks are. Other folks who aren't directly impacted are going to do the work with you. Then there's like a sweeping in. The thing I saw that was so powerful at this gathering recently was there was somebody there. We were like 30 people and there was one person there who was crossing boundaries in ways that were a little hard to pin down, but making a lot of people uncomfortable. Also people liked them and they were fun and, and creative and beautiful and had many gifts and brought a lot to the space, but also were like try, continually trying to initiate and getting close to folks in ways that they weren't reading cues very well. Um, or trying to initiate like close off cuddle puddles that like organizers were like, we're not equipped for this. We didn't plan for this. We don't want to have that happening here. And they were like not getting it um, or, or close on cuddle puddles, but like just not hearing a no kind of because they had their own framework that they thought would work and they weren't really taking in the feedback um, or, you know, going up to people and getting close to them without reading cues. So in that space, what was done was like, the folks who had been directly impacted by that, they weren't there to teach this person something. That was not their purpose for coming. And the organizers had strong enough relationships and had worked together long enough and trusted one another and had worked through their bystander conditioning enough <laughs> that they were like, okay, we're going to give this person a description of behaviors and ask them to stop in a way that's like clear and caring and give them a chance. In this case, the person got that and wasn't, wasn't able to change their behavior quickly enough. And it was a short gathering. And so then after another day or two where it wasn't able to stop, um, they were like, okay, if we stop the whole program and deal with this, we're going to prevent everyone who came here from having the experience they came here to have. We don't want that. And we don't want to force the folks who are being impacted to st struggle through this person's lesson. But they do have a lesson they need this isn't the right time and place to get that lesson. We're going to ask them to go and we're going to tell everybody why and how in a way that's respectful and kind. We're going to ask everyone, don't get nasty, don't gossip, don't be vicious. That's not what we're here for. But we're not going to allow this person to continue harming folks. And then there was someone who is not directly impacted, who's like, was in this case like older and presents in many ways or is received socially with a lot of masculine privilege. They're not assist dude but they present in ways that give them a lot of that power um and they are also someone that that person liked and trusted and asked for them that person offered to continue to be in relationship after and do that work with over the next weeks and months and keep a keep a connection because the people who were directly impacted wanted to just get back to what they were there for so, and then also people were like, and we'll make sure you get across the border. We'll make sure you get home safe. We'll make sure that you will get you another bus ticket because it's changing your bus ticket time. Um, there was care given with boundaries kept. And that allowed even the folks who were close to that person or were forming friendships with that person to be like, okay, this was done in a way that was humanizing, but the directly impacted folks weren't the ones who had to name, process, teach, educate at the expense of their safety and well-being. You know, because so many times folks who have those kinds of things to learn are like, oh, you know, I learned, so you must be happy. Right. You're like, you're like shattered on the floor for yeah. years afterwards and they're off having great experiences. Thanks for the lesson. Like, yeah. And it's like, well, no, if you're not the center of the universe, then everyone doesn't exist to teach you things. <laughs> you have to then make it right and be not just like, thanks for the lesson. Now take your, go shattered, your shattered self and carry on. But like, how can I fix this? And that person did not enjoy this experience 
But I think as a way, as a way to get asked to go, it's one of the kinder ways. You know, and maybe in a few years they'll they'll have some other understanding that that was a gift, even if they don't have it right now. We have to be comfortable with those that double move. Yeah, yeah, we have to be comfortable with people being disappointed and mm-hmm. feeling frustrated, and even having their feelings hurt. That's not the same as harm, especially when there's Darvo. Especially when someone's like, "Oh my God, you said I caused harm, so you're harming me," which is not harm. It's just it's just that Darvo response that's so common and we have to recognize it. Well, I could talk to you forever. This has been really fun. That this will be a very plump episode. So before you and I head off to record our conversation for Patreon, can you tell people a little bit about where they can find you, get the book, what's coming up? There's an awesome book club uh, that I want you to tell everybody about. Yeah. So can you share a little bit about uh, all of that? Absolutely. Um, so if folks want to read more of my writing, um, the book itself is called Turn This World Inside Out, and it's available through AK Press. Um, it's in all the bookstores. AK has fantastic distribution all over the place, all over the world, I think. Um, so you can usually get it at any local independent bookstore. If they aren't carrying it, please go to your local independent bookstore and be like, hey, do you have this book? Um, because if they get a couple of requests, they're more likely to keep it in stock and books on shelves get into people's hands, which is really nice. Um, also, um, you can order it directly from AK Press if you're in the States. It's absolutely quick and easy, and they have a discount if you order directly from them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a discount if you go through the Healing Justice podcast um, that you can get from there. Um, that's like 15% on top of the AK discount that's already there. Um, and you can also get it through like Amazon and Chapters and Target and Walmart. But don't start there. Yeah, don't um, start there. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite accessible. Um, if you live in Vancouver, like we do, you can literally like get in touch with me, and I have a box of them at my house. But they're also in Vancouver, available at People's Co-op Books and oh, yeah. um, Massey Books at my favorite bookstores, and um, some other books around town. Um, and then, if you want to check out the blog, it's at norasamaran.com, which is just the pen name that I made up. That is a jumbling of the letters of my name because <laughs> um, I thought no one would ever be reading it um, or know that it was me. Ha-ha. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you can also, if you want to do a deeper dive with it, which is super, super amazing, and I feel really lucky that this is happening, the um, Healing Justice podcast is um, hosting it as their book club book yes! right now yeah, for like three months. And um, members who join, you can, there's lots of free stuff that you can do through Healing Justice Podcast. There's a preview that I did with Ruby Smith Diaz, one of the contributors that was spectacular and is up on as a Facebook live stream that you can watch. Um, and there's also a um, the podcast episode that I did with um, Kate Winning, the host of the Healing Justice Podcast, and Serena Bandar, who's one of the contributors in the book. That's lovely. And then we did a... Um, talking about some of the themes of the book and then Serena and I also did a practice session um, that's available through the Healing Justice podcast and then members also get a um, like a book club discussion guide with questions that I helped rate and Kate and the Healing Justice folks put together Um, and then there's going to be a webinar um, that Alex Johnson, Alex will be scheduled to be on which I'm very excited about. So folks want to check out the Healing Justice podcast the link is healingjustice.org forward slash book club 
for the book club um, link and they can learn more about that. They can watch the free stuff. And if they want to do a deeper dive in the webinar on the book club discussion guide, then they can join for, I think, $10 a month okay. um, to support the podcast. Well, I will have the link to your blog, the link to AK Press, and the link to all the Healing Justice stuff in the show notes. So people can just click right through and join. I will be on the call uh, for the webinar. So I hope everyone else gets the book and reads it and joins. You're in book club? Yeah, I'm in book club. Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) I know. I know. So it'll be super fun. So everybody totally check that out and join. And, um, uh, Nava, thank you so much for being here with us and being so generous with your stories and your thoughts. I'm so excited for everyone to hear this. Thank you so much for hosting. This has been really, really good for me. Good. Okay. Well, everyone tuning in, uh, if you support the show on Patreon, head over to patreon.com slash SGR podcast for a bonus chat that Nava and I are going to do. And otherwise I will talk to you next week. Bye. You used to light up like a spark. Now you're blue, treading water in the dark. A huge thanks to the vocal few, the married duo behind the music featured in this week's intro and outro. Find them at vocalfew.com. Head to patreon.com slash sex gets real to support the show and get awesome weekly bonuses. As you look towards the next week, I wonder, what will you do differently that rewrites an old story, revitalizes a stuck relationship, or helps you to connect more deeply with your pleasure? Shame. Love is supposed to be the thing.